what if, what if the philosopher Martin Buber had had an Alexa, or if you're more into Apple, Siri, how would he have talked to it? How would he have addressed it as you or as it? Buber sharply distinguishes between the it world and the thou or you world, between the world of things that we can handle, learn about, control, systematize, and um, get a hold on, and the world of the person whom we encounter being out of control, who makes a claim on us. Talking about the world of things, we use the world id. Talking about um, and two persons, we use the words you and thou. On one afternoon, after having reread Buber, this Buberian distinction between thou and it made me listen to Alexa, to my Alexa differently, because I realized that it, Alexa, is addressing me as you, and I tended to address Alexa as you, although Alexa definitely is a thing, although it has a human name. And that's the starting point for the thinking that got me into this paper, thinking about personhood in a digital age. What happens if a computer system starts to address humans with the word you, and humans answer by addressing those things as you? One might argue that conversational practices like that blur the distinction between things and person. On that background, I ran into a whole bunch of questions. Should computer systems be designed in a way that prevents this confusion? What does it mean to treat an entity as a person? What follows from this presumption and what makes an entity prone to be treated as a person? How does it alter our understanding of personhood and of each other as persons if such a small speaker called Alexa can appear to be a person as well? And given the Greek origin of the word person, which also referred to the mask of an actor, which features of that mask person make it possible to give it to a computer as well as to people? And how does and should the mask change under conditions of digital communication? For this paper, which you might have read, I have just picked one of these questions. Namely, I'm quite selectively interested in how the use of digital technologies could alter the practical imagination of oneself and others as personal agents and the consequences thereof. As I said, I will not read the whole paper, but just briefly introduce you into the categories um, I'm working with. So I will, um, as Charles Taylor said, uh, clean my throat and introduce you into the me methodology in order to repeat my basic thesis and make, in the end, some basic um, clarifications. I've already referred to some of the comments um, you have made. The categories I, uh, I work uh, with. Um, the specification of the topic stems from two sources. The first source for me is the 
sociology of social practice or theory of social practice. And I'm hugely indebted to the work of Pierre Bourdieu, Theodor Schatzky, and Andreas Reckwitz. And following them, I understand a practice as a procedure that always includes material like this um, notebook, that includes a body like this thing here, that includes imaginations like the pictures I have in my mind um, about what you might be interested in, what you might be bored of, what it means to speak in front of a public, and so on and so on and so on. And it also includes implicit knowledge. Um, I don't think about moving my hands while I talk, but I have some kind of practical knowledge uh, about how to do that in a, well, more convincing or less convincing way, I don't know. But it, it, at least I don't think about it, so there's some kind of implicit knowledge involved. And I think the, the, the great thing about the, the theory of practice is that it allows us to see how these things to hang, hang together, how they are connected. They are connected um, in a way that um, we can't tear apart from a theoretical standpoint. As soon as I leave this practice, as soon as I become an observer um, of myself, I can try to talk about the different things as I just did, the material, the body, and the imagination. But um, I, I lose, so to say, the hold on the practical logic that makes these things um, be interconnected while I actually am inside that practice. Um, take, take, take riding a bike, for example. As an, as an observer of somebody riding a bike, you can describe the bike and you can describe what the body is doing, but just that description won't teach you how to ride a bike because there's some kind of practical knowledge and some kind of um, logic that is only accessible to the one who is participating in that practice. And that these things are interconnected practically. That is um, the thing I found so interesting and um, helpful about theories of social practice, because it allows us to see the connection between technology, the things, the body, and imaginations, and always um, gives us um, uh, some kind of inner um, hesitance. We have to he have to be hesitant about saying, well, that is, that is caused by the technology. Because as soon as the technology is part of a social practice, it is part of a social practice, which is always connected to body and imagination and all that. And what the technology actually does practically is not uh, visible independent of the very concrete practice I'm actually using it in. And that's, I think, what this category of social practice helps us to see. And that's what I value that, 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 that category for. I already used the term imagination. Um, and with using the term imagination, I'm drawing on um, Charles Taylor, on Benedict Anderson, and on um, the little known philosopher Cornelius Kostoriadis. They all talk about the social imaginary. And the social imaginary is the collective resource and horizon in which people participating in a certain practice make sense of um, what uh, they are doing, make sense of their lives, of ourselves, of actions, and so on. These, these are, um, yes, and these this, this, this two things, the, the, the theory of imag the imaginary and the theory of practices, um, 
give me the, the, the categories to gave me the categories to deal with that um, topic of personhood and personal agency in the digital age. I'm dealing with images inscribed in the Western modern social imaginary. And to be more precise, images of personhood and personal agency. And to deal with images of personal agency that play always a role in our digital practices um, has that, that framework has consequences for the thinking. First of all, I'm not talking about whether anybody of us is a person or not. I'm not talking metaphysically or ontologically or even empirically. I'm not interested in whether we are free, whether we are personal agents or we are persons. I'm interested in what it means to imagine oneself and others as persons. People imagine themselves as others as persons and treat each other as persons. And that's the interesting thing. I'm, I, that's the thing I'm interested in. What I am asking for is the ground for subjective plausibility. Behind that stands a conviction of Benedict Anderson that an imagination needs to be plausible in order to become part of a social imaginary. But plausibility does not mean um, what I see from the standpoint of the observer, but plausibility is subjective plausibility. So in living my everyday life, in participating in digital practices, um, the Im certain images of being a person need to be plausible to me. Otherwise, they wouldn't be part of the, um, wouldn't be part of the social imaginary that has an impact on me. Secondly, I am talking, I, in my paper, I'm talking about John Locke and uh, Bonhoeffer, but even if that sounds scary, I'm not that interested in, in, in John Locke and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's thinking in, these paper, in this paper. In other papers, I'm interested in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's thinking, at least, but in this one, I'm not. Um, rather, their theories serve as a pointer um, to what has become part of the social imaginary. And that is not a matter of theory from the academic observer's perspective. Rather, the social imaginary names the imaginations people participating in practices have as an horizon that helps them to make sense of the world and their action and action plans. And last but not least, last but not least, uh, we're talking about categories. Um, to use the word imaginary or imagination might sound as if I were talking about a toothless tiger or mere fictions. Oh, that's just an imagination in one's head. That needs to be harmless. It is not. And Cornelius Castoriadis' work has helped me to see why it is not harmless. I'm not talking about individual imaginations only, but about the social imaginary as a resource and horizon of individual and collective actions. And according to Kostoriadis, the social imaginary does not only persist in people and their minds and their actions, but foremostly in institutions and symbols. Let's take Benedict Anderson's famous imagination of the nation as an example. 
the image of the nation is not only about the images and feelings one might have singing a national anthem. It's not only the individual image one might connect with being part of one's nation, one nation. The imagination is also institutionalized in walls, in frontiers, in laws, even in armed military. The forensic imagination of personal agency I'm talking about is also institutionalized in legal systems, in the way how a court system works and attributes an action to a person guilty of having committed that crime. Even if I stopped imagining myself as person with agency or as a German citizen, I would still run into institutions that treat me as a personal agent and that treat me as a German citizen. To put it with Kosovo-Yadis example, imaginations aren't fictions, they are armed. Using this category, I'm interested um, in different images of personhood. And you might think of a whole bunch of images of personhood. I'm trying to get some clarity into that. I'm trying to distinguish two, one connected with Locke and one connected with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The first one I call forensic image of personal agency. And the forensic imagination imagines the personal agent as the defendant or potentially accused in a court situation. It is a three-figure relation that forms this imagination. There is the personal agent as a defendant or an accused. There is a judge who attributes certain actions to that person. And there are the actions of the people affected by that actions. On the other hand, I think we can talk about something called responsorial imagination. Responsorial imaginations imagine the personal agent as being faced with another person, a claim, a thou, to say it with Buber, or reality as such. This imagination presupposes just two positions, the encounter between an I and a thou, between a personal agent and um, some kind of reality that personal agent is uh, reacting to. And I'm coming to an end. My thesis here is, while forensic imaginations of personal agency have been dominant so far, under conditions of digital communication, they become more plausible in a toxic way and less effectful in a liberating way. Just two sentences about that. When we think about a digital pillory, when we think about digital scapegoating, those are social media practices that work only in the horizon of a forensic imaginary. And they destroy and hinder humans from flourishing. On the other hand, the work of what one could call seductive power and personalization on social media bypasses conscious decisions and thereby undermines the empowering effect of forensic imaginations. That puts a challenge to theology and ecclesial practices 
informed by theology, just because Christian education, preaching, and narratives often propagate forensic imaginations. I think that responsorial imaginations that have been less prevalent so far have more emancipative and liberating effects in a digital age. And very concretely, that would mean to tell different stories, because said with Taylor, stories communicate social imaginations. Most likely, those stories will be less about the impermeable mask of the hero whose actions change history. More likely, those stories will be about people who work together in relation to each other, in solidarity with each other, and sympathetic for each other, sensitive to the ambivalence of contemporary existence, conscious of the powers that work through one's own activity, and simultaneously not willing to stop working for the relative betterment. They will be about the porous mask on stage, which also come to be called persons. Thank you.